Good morning once more. Um, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You go to a doctor, you are in search of a remedy. That's obvious. And when you sit down with them, uh, they will take inventory of all your symptoms to arrive at some sort of treatment. That's what doctors do. Now, um, there's the way of treating symptoms, just trying to mitigate them. But what you really hope doctors will do is, as best they can, and they always can't, uh, get to the causes, get to the things that are underlying all those symptoms. Treat, treat the root issue. That's, that's where healing comes from, is when you get to the, to the root issue of a situation, um, because that's where healing comes from. Um, if you know anything about my family, uh, you know that we have a dog in our world, uh, and that dog is actually able to sniff something. That dog is able to smell when my oldest son's blood sugars start to go up really fast or start to drop really quickly. Um, she can smell it um, because she knows uh, that there is something up there and because we give off an odor <laughs> whenever our blood sugars start to go up or down really fast. And uh, doctors have had all sorts of diagnostic techniques for a whole range of centuries and millennia. And in recent years, the very thing that my dog does for my oldest son is actually a field of research in a broader array of applications than you might have ever known. Now dogs are able to smell when you're suffering from any number of things, including cancer. They can smell different kinds of cancer because you and I give off an odor. Who knew? That's, you might say, when we're talking about cancer, you're talking about an odor that's really severe, an odor that you might even equate with something called a stench, and that you ignore that odor, you ignore that stench to your peril. We're on the downhill slope of a series of sermons on the book of Proverbs because we believe that this life is in need of wisdom. And a lot of the sermons that you've heard us uh, harvest from that book of wisdom have had to do with the things that stifle life, that in some ways are their own form of stench, uh, greed, uh, indifference to the poor, um, bitterness, uh, injustice, uh, lust, um, envy, what all those things are. Those all have in themselves a, a particular character, but they all, if you will, operate from a common origin. And the topic of our sermon today, as you heard it alluded to at the beginning of the service, is to speak of that common origin. That thing from which all those other things that smell take their source. And that source is pride. Pride is that thing, that stench that you ignore to your peril. And what we want to do in the wake of these texts is to identify what, do, what does the scripture mean by this pride that we should be concerned about? And why is it uniquely dangerous in the way we live our lives? And then thirdly, and most importantly, how, how will it be remedied? What is to heal that one thing from which all these other forms of stench proceed? That's where we're going. And we're going to listen to the Proverbs again for that. If you're able to stand, we're going to start in Proverbs chapter 11. We're reading from the book of Proverbs. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. But a man of understanding remains silent. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. 
The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. This is the humbling word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As always, we need to get our handle on a precise definition as best we can of the subject of our concern. So what are we talking about when we're talking about pride? And maybe the best way to come at it, first of all, is to talk about what we're not talking about. Um, This Thursday, the Little League World Series opens in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. So uh, picture me, if you will, uh, at a baseball game when some team from Indiana, which I think beat the New Haven, Connecticut team yesterday and advanced. Imagine some kid on that Indiana ball club in the last inning. They played a seven innings in Little League World Series. In the last inning, hits an in-the-park home run and wins the game. He crosses home plate, slides in, called safe. At that moment, his chest feels about three times larger than his body. He is full. He is delighted. And his mother, if you will imagine, jumps over the bleacher stand, comes to him, wraps him in his embrace and says, oh, you did it. Way to go. That's pride. That's not the pride we're talking about today. There is a a satisfaction, a kind of delight that you might feel at some sort of accomplishment or, or some sort of wonderful moment that you never could have orchestrated for yourself, and you go, oh, that's awesome. That's pride. It's not the pride we're talking about here. The pride we are talking about here is, imagine if that kid that just hit the game-winning homer walks into the dugout, and his center fielder comes up and says, man, way to go, you did it. And the kid that hits the home run looks at that kid and says, yeah, Are you ever not going to strike out? Oh, oh, okay, something else is in your heart, right? And and then if you can imagine that that winning run kid's mom going up to the mom of the kid who strikes out a lot and that mom saying, is your your son getting enough sleep? You know, maybe, maybe he should opt out of tomorrow's game. You know, let's think of the team. Yeah, I know, we're all like, what? We don't even know why. We can't even define it, but we know, we, know it is, we know what pride is when we see it, when we feel it. That pride is the kind of pride that we're talking about today, where there's something at work in you that makes your skin kind of crawl when you see it, but unfortunately, we don't see it when, we, when it's happening in ourselves. And you, you see some of that just in chapter 13 and chapter 28. Listen to those again. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is wise and will be delivered. Now, that should sound a little familiar to where we were talking last week about providence, that when you believe in providence, you're already recognizing your own limitations. Pride here, just sort of the The garden variety of pride manifests in this idea that, you know what? Thank you. I have it all under control. I know it all. I'm good. I don't need any help. I don't need any guidance. I am this self-contained thing. My heart is such that it lives, as it were, in a bunker. And no one needs to come in. And I don't need to go out. I've got this. 
Uh, what does that look like? Um, so yesterday we borrowed a truck from a friend um, who shall remain nameless because if I name them, then it's like telling you that he won the lottery and then everybody will want to borrow the truck also. Um, but we, we borrowed a truck to go pick something up and I get in the truck and I, I discover that it's a stick shift and it's been a long time since I've used a stick shift. So in my little moment of awkwardness, I said, huh, the clutch, that's the middle pedal, right? <laughs> and he laughed along with me thinking that I was making a joke when in truth, I was really trying to verify which one was the clutch. Yeah, like, oh my. And so then I, I proceed to try to back that thing out and, and it, 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 it stalls and my wife notices and she goes, Oh, it's a stick shift. Honey, um, do you want me to drive? And I said, yeah, you better. We are moving a fridge and we're going uphill. So there it is, right? That's just a little garden variety piece of pride. Like, uh, I don't want you to know that I, I need help. I don't want you to know that my, there's a limitation to my understanding. I'd rather just keep you in suspense about that. That's, it's personal. And the, but the problem is, folks, is that little garden variety, that, that can work noxious stuff in you. You follow that line, you will never admit your vulnerabilities or your weaknesses. You let that little thing take root in you, you will never confess your sins. It has a consequence. You let pride go there in its personal way, stuff will happen that is something that you don't end up laughing about. It's personal. It's also interpersonal, and you wouldn't, shouldn't be surprised about that. Listen to what it said again in chapter 11, verse 12. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. It's envisioning a situation in which you, you could call somebody out for something, but, but what we're talking about here is somebody who's denouncing a neighbor. Not simply speaking of a truth, but, but, but actually trying to take a pot shot at them. It is, it is a sort of speaking that is devoid of any love, It's not really any concern for them. It really has no care for them. All it cares about is putting them in their place and therefore it is devoid of any kind of self-reflection. Any sort of humility. What animates that sort of feeling is the thrill of letting them know that they're wrong. Imagine how the internet would be different if in our impulse at times to correct people online that we gave ourselves two minutes to ask ourselves if we are ever have ever been guilty of the very thing that we are out to correct them of. Imagine how the character of our words might change or how we might not say anything at all. Like the internet would break that day. Because pride works at the personal level, pride works at the interpersonal level. There's this presumptuousness contained within that pride about ourselves or about one another that speaks to its character. But If you want to capture its essence, all you really have to do is look at the word that is, the Hebrew word that is translated for pride there in chapter 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. The word for pride is the Hebrew word zadon. And zadon taken from its original um, setting, it's it's just, it's, it's, its essence in its most literal nature is the idea of a pot that is boiling over and seething and whatever was there inside it now begins to exceed the confines of its, of its container. It has gotten outside itself. It has forgotten itself, to borrow a more archaic way of putting it. It is boiling over. It is a, a source of being bloated and self-inflated. 
If you want to borrow a, a schoolyard term, it's what happens when you're called a fathead. When you're, metaphorically speaking, your head is disproportionately sized to the rest of your body, to the rest of your person. That's what Zadon is imagining. It is a distorted view of self. If you were alive in the 1980s, like I was, then you may remember when Ronald Reagan was shot in March of 1981. You may remember he goes to the hospital to be attended to. You may remember that the vice president was out of town. And you may remember then Secretary of State then Alexander Haig stands up in front of a press conference and says, with the president down and the vice president away, I am at the White House. I am in control. And at that moment, everybody goes, oh my goodness, who's awkward now? He hasn't read the Constitution. He's number four in the line of succession. <laughs> Speaker, of the Repre- Speaker of the House is next in line between the president and the vice president. And for the next 20 years of his life, Alexander Haig was just remembered as the guy that said, I'm in charge, when he wasn't. He arrogated authority to himself he didn't have. Zadon, he was larger than himself. You know where else I saw it? Last night at the concert with Lyle Lovett which in my mind was a moral imperative to be seen. But two chairs over, this guy starts mouthing off at this woman who simply asked him to stop screaming so she could hear the music. And for the next 10 minutes, he is jawing at her, complaining that, he asked, that she asked him just to be quieter, just jawing at her, until she reaches her hand out and just says, can we be friends? Shakes his hand. Here's a guy who doesn't even know who this woman is, and is ridiculing her with harassing words, and he doesn't even know her. Zadon, it's boiling over. It's beyond himself. He is a fathead in that moment. The perfect case study of pride, and maybe you might call it its cousin vainglory in the scriptures, is what happens to Saul, King Saul, in 1 Samuel. You, you may remember that story. Uh, Saul uh, becomes aware of David, who, unbeknownst to Saul, is going to succeed him at some point. And, uh, you know, David comes to the rescue of Israel, and he dispatches Goliath, and that rouses the rest of Israel to dispatch the rest of the Philistines. So what happens? Saul and David are on their way back home, and this sort of uh, de facto parade begins, and all of the Hebrew women and children rush out, and they grab their cell phones and start trying to catch selfies with Saul and David. You know, hashtag my Hebrew bros. And Thank you. And in that moment, in the parade starts chanting, and what do they say? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And how does Saul respond? Not well. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. In Saul's heart of hearts, I'm the king. I'm the anointed one. I am too big to fail or be overshadowed. It's a case study in pride. And if you know that storyline, you know where it goes. It doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop with him being angry and displeased. In short order, he is what? Throwing a spear at David to pin him to the wall if he could. Because as we said, pride is the stench from which most other stenches originate. It is what is upstream of envy and lust and bitterness and indifference and and all those things that we've spoken of previously. You think pride is just this thing that you struggle with, but if you let it go unabated, it will take you to places you never dreamt of. And that's 
where we've kind of shift, shifting now, not so much into the nature or, 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 the, or the, the character of pride, but more into its consequences. Why is it dangerous? Why is it uniquely dangerous? It's uniquely dangerous, first of all, just because of the consequences that we begin to speak of. And you hear that again, starting in chapter 13, verse 10. By insolence comes nothing but what? Strife. And then in 11.2, when pride comes, what? Then comes disgrace. In Saul's case, there's pride. And then there's anger and displeasure. And then there's an attempt to murder David. That's I would say, qualifies as strife. And by the end of Saul's life, he falls on a sword in disgrace of his kingship and of his kingdom. He's throwing spears. Most of us do not find ourselves in a situation when we're throwing spears. You know what we do throw? We throw words. A lot. I do. You have. We throw words. And, and we're more likely to throw words for nothing, for no greater purpose than winning. If, if you are only out to win, if you are only out to show them that they're wrong, you have let pride seep into what is animating your effort. If you are fighting for nothing greater than to show them that they were incorrect, pride is at work. And in spears like Saul and in words like ours, look, how many of our relationships have been degraded, if not dissolved practically, because the most important thing we were fighting for was for them to know that we were right. There is something greater than that. And we, in our pride, we forget the moment. We, we are blind to it. And that works personally. But look, what happens personally, individually, you know very well. It works at the institutional level too. Institutions can adopt pride to an extent that what happens? They're out to defend something that's not nearly as important as the thing they ought to be defending. And you know why I know that? Because you've been reading about that this week. It's a pretty good bet that you've read about some churches, some segments of the Christian communion that are reeling this week because they sought to defend something that was not nearly as important as the thing they should have been defending for a very long time. Institutions do it. They're trapped in their own pride. And what's true of individuals and institutions is also very capable of doing and with great historical evidence in nations. Every once in a while, you will hear some president, premier, prime minister, or king say, it's in this nation's interests that we act as we do. As if to suggest that their interests are somehow above everyone else's interests, when those interests might be based on both questionable premises and very suspicious ends or means. If you just saw Steven Spielberg's film, the most recent one, called The Post, telling the story of the, of the, the, story of the Pentagon Papers that broke out in the 1970s, a, a long-standing set of documents where the government acknowledged that all of their efforts in French Indochina were, based, were, were, were coming to naught, and yet what they said publicly and what they knew privately were two different things. But for 30 years the desire to protect the reputation of this country allowed them to justify rationalization and concealment and deception and the perpetuation of injustice. 
That, friends, is pride writ large. That's why it's dangerous. It's dangerous to nations. It's dangerous to institutions. It's dangerous to individuals. And that's why C.S. Lewis said in, in a chapter in Mere Christianity that I could not commend to you more, which is, which is linked on our website this week of all the resources that supplement our sermons. But in that chapter in Mere Christianity called The Great Sin, which is about pride, he says this, It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity. Pride by nature is competitive, he goes on to say. And that is why it creates strife. And in that strife we find our disgrace. When the presence of pride you begin to sniff, when it begins to give off an odor, when it begins to give off a stench, then you hear confirmed what you heard in chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Why is that? Why does pride go there? Why is the system, if you will, built that way? Now we're talking not just about the consequences of pride. Now we're talking about its nature, its very essence. And that nature you hear there in chapter 21. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. The, the problem with pride is not simply to be thought of from a, a pragmatic nature that you, know, you should stay away from pride because you want to kind of limit the damage it can do. That's true, but that's not the main reason. The main reason we avoid pride is because it is sin. It's an offense. It's an offense not just toward one another, it's an offense to God. And it is so grievous an offense that God actively works to oppose it. So that you heard there in chapter 15, verse 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud but maintains the widow's boundaries. That, that short phrase is imagining a scenario in which those with power end up oppressing those who have no power. They continue to disenfranchise them further because they can, and so they do. And that text is saying when pride motivates oppressing the disenfranchised and the disadvantaged, it is God and his people who actively work to confront, if not overturn it. That sin motivates God to punish it, to rehabilitate it, to stop it. Why is it sin? For one reason, because this is what pride is. It's a form of fear. And pride is tapping into the second most powerful motivator you know. And that motivator is fear. And when it comes to pride, what that fear does is compel you to want to steal some glory that doesn't belong to you. To preserve, to protect, and defend a kind of status of glory that isn't a properly yours. And if you came into this worship service this morning and you sat down when that pre-service text was up, I, I hope that you would make it a, a new habit if it wasn't, isn't one of yours already. To come in here and to see that, we don't just put that up there to fill or to create a slide. We're asking you to meditate upon it. 
And what was that text? What Isaiah 42, 8 said. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no one else. There is some glory that is uniquely his that he doesn't share. That's his alone. And you may think, why? I thought God liked to share. Does God not share that glory because he's afraid of feeling inferior? That is not the reason. Does God not share his glory because he wants you to feel at all times like low life and pond scum? That is not the reason. The glory that pride is out to steal because we're afraid not to have it is a fear of not having a glory that we think we need. And therefore the problem with pride is an attempt to go for a glory that is independent of knowing him or understanding the Lord. And therefore it is a fear that God does not have your best interests at heart. And so you've got to take your own matters into your own hands and to substitute or compensate for what he has not or what you think he will not do. Kids, this is why you feel tempted to create this perfect impression of you online. You want to curate your life. You want to show everybody that this is a certain way. And brothers and sisters who are adults, if you do it, you do it too. I think I have. Imagine if we all had to show the most embarrassing thing that happened in our day every day rather than the thing we want everyone to see. It would be a different internet. It would be a different experience. And it's because we're out to establish a form of glory for ourselves that we're afraid God won't give us in himself. And that impulse has a very ancient pedigree. Because as far back as Genesis 3, when God says to Adam and Eve, hey, it's all yours. Enjoy it, flourish in it, cultivate it, fill it, subdue it, use it for my good ends. Then the serpent comes along and says, you know what? That tree that he said, don't touch that one. Like he put the security tape around it. I don't think he meant it. Like, I don't think he really said that. You might have missed that. You lost in translation. And so the serpent says, hey, for God knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What he's offering them and what they bite on is this idea that they could be just like God, have everything that he has, but not need him at all. To have what he has, but not have to subject or submit anything unto him for his own good, or for his glory, rather, and their good. That is having a glory independent of communion with him, and that's what propels our pride. And that, friends is the first instance of what modern commentators like to call this thing called FOMO. It's an acronym, and it stands for Fear of Missing Out. How many things did you do this week because you were afraid if you didn't have it, life would not be good? Or if you didn't get that, you won't be able to tell everybody that you had that too. The fear of missing out reminds us or propels us to do all sorts of things. It's what propelled Adam and Eve to bite on the apple. It's what propelled Saul to throw the spear at David because he was fearing missing out on the glory he might have. It was what led David to sleep with Bathsheba because he was afraid of missing out on what she might have. You know who you know also represents the fear of missing out? The fantastic Mr. Fox from Roald Dahl's famous little kid's short story. You know that story? It's about um, a clever fox, right? 
who's married and with children, and uh, he's trying to get food for his family. But these three farmers that live topside, Bogus, Bunce, and Bean, they don't want to give him his food. And so what does he do? He hatches this plan that will outwit these dim-witted, um, these dim-witted farmers. And in this scene from that film made by Wes Anderson, who is actually a neighbor of mine. See the pride? There it was. Just demonstration of pride, right? We, we played in each other's front yards. It was great. Wes Anderson makes this film, Fantastic Mr. Fox. And in this moment, when Fox is realizing of all the calamity he's created, because now his family and his friends are all trapped in this underground cavern as a consequence of his plan, he has this little interior moment with his wife, reflecting on why he does what he does. Listen to what's motivating him. Badger's right. These farmers aren't going to quit until they catch me. I shouldn't have lied to your face. I shouldn't have fallen off the wagon and started secretly stealing chickens on the sly. I shouldn't have pushed these farmers so far and tried to embarrass them and cuss with their heads. I enjoyed it, but I shouldn't have done it. And now there's only one way out. Maybe if I hand myself over and let them kill me, stuff me, and hang me over their mantelpiece. You'll do no such thing. Darling, maybe they'll let everyone else live. Oh, why'd you have to get us into this, Foxy? I don't know, but I have a possible theory. I think I have this thing where I need everybody to think I'm the greatest, the quote-unquote fantastic Mr. Fox. And if they aren't completely knocked out and dazzled and kind of intimidated by me, then I don't feel good about myself. Foxes traditionally like to court danger, hunt prey, and outsmart predators, and that's what I'm actually good at. I think at the end of the day, I'm just... I know. We're wild animals. <laughs> Not just foxes. We're all wild animals. And there's a part of us that just wants to prove to the world that we're fantastic. But when we follow that impulse, look where it gets us. That's where it got foxy. What's your story of where your attempt to show the world, if not yourself, that you're fantastic has led you. What is beneath that pride is fear. Fear of not believing or thinking that you're fantastic. But the problem is when you allow that desire to motivate all that you do, you have set yourself up for something really profoundly disastrous that was summarized by something that David Foster Wallace said not so long ago. When it comes to living for other people's good, or good opinions, he says, the more people think that you're really good, actually the stronger fear of being a fraud is. And what's true of authors is true of everyone, including pastors. You make everybody's opinion of you, what determines whether or not you think yourself fantastic, you've just stepped into a world of greater fear. But here's the the beauty in realizing that. When you recognize that it is fear that is beneath your pride, you have actually been pointed to its remedy. When you are aware that fear is what undergirds your pride that leads you to go in a number of directions with it, you have actually discovered its Achilles heel, its fatal flaw. And by that I mean this. 
The problem with pride is not that there is a fear attached to it or underneath it. The problem with pride is that that fear is in the wrong place. It is directed to the wrong thing. And therefore the remedy for pride, its healing, is not so much in discarding fear as refining it, as pointing it to another location. And where is that fear? Where should it be? You can probably answer my own question because you've heard this as a subtext of almost every sermon we've heard because it's the idea that shows its way in almost every chapter of the Proverbs. It's the idea of the fear of the Lord. And so you heard it again in chapter 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. It's not that this world is not supposed to have any fear. It's that your fear ought to be in the right place and that fear has to be in the Lord. But that fear, as we've said week in and week out, is not simply horror. Now truly, the author of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. But a mature fear doesn't stay there. A mature fear is a fear that simply silences one's mouth in humility. It is less a horror than it is a humbling. That's a mature fear of the Lord. And you know where that mature fear goes? What consequence or what effect it has? It corrects one view of oneself, first of all. It helps you to see that you are not him. Stop trying to be him. And secondly, when you realize that you're, you have a different view of yourself, it refines everything that motivates all your striving. How you see yourself and why you do what you do are the two most important things that you might ever consider. And the fear of the Lord refines them both. And when you get that, if you find that God alone is fantastic, then you don't have to spend the rest of your life trying to prove that you are. If knowing that God is best, then trying to be good apart from him is pointless. There's no, ter- there's no purpose in it. And when you know that, then you just do your work and go to bed. And you don't lose the sleep over that. Psalm 127. He blesses his saints with sleep to those who know that the Lord alone builds it and those who labor do not labor in vain. Everything ceases to be a way to prove your worth when your fear is properly in the Lord and nowhere else and not an attempt to convince everybody or yourself that you're fantastic. So there's the rub, right? If that's the fear of the Lord and that's the remedy to all my pride, how do I get that fear of the Lord? Listen once last time to chapter 16, verse 18 and 19 because that's where the fear of the Lord comes from. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now, those words were a mom and dad talking to their kid about how to be wise. But friends, in that, you have a hint of Jesus. You hear an echo unintentionally voiced of the gospel, the good news that he came to give us. What is that good news? Here is that good news. It's for your pride and for my pride that he, not I or you, suffered destruction. It is for your 
and my inclination, if not practice, of sneering, of, of looking down at others because we think we are so hot. It was because of that which is in us that he fell. And at his cross, at his feet, what little spoil he had, they divided it among those who thought themselves better than him. And at his cross, he so identifies with the oppressed, with the poor, in suffering for those for whom he died. And he not only identified with those who are oppressed, he also identified with those who are the oppressor. Because he died for those who oppress, that their sin might be covered also and that they might be delivered from their oppressiveness. That's the gospel. That's what he did on our behalf. Things that we could not do ourselves, that is the way we might be healed of our pride and in no way else. We need him to have that fear. And then we need his church. We need people who love us, who are courageous enough to burst burst our prideful bubble. And the perfect picture I know of that is what Abigail Adams was for John Adams. Abigail is to John what the church is to be for you and for me. And in this brief scene from that series that HBO put out about John Adams, it is the night before John Adams will give his closing remarks to a jury to defend those who shot on the colonists in the Boston Massacre. He didn't defend the colonists. He was commissioned to defend the British soldiers. And here in his closing argument, he has given his argument to Abigail, his wife, for her to give him his honest her honest feedback. And I share it with you because I think it captures it, but I share it with you with a measure of fear and trembling because you're about to hear what is my fatal flaw. What is my struggle with pride? So much so that I show this scene to every single class I've ever had to teach on with regard to preaching. So listen to how Abigail is for John. Be still. Allow me to finish. Well, John, how can I answer if you'll not let me finish? You did not like it. I did not say that. Oh, you did not have to. It is a fine summary for the defense. There is, is much to admire. It is, perhaps, at times... Yes? John, there's not a person in Boston who dealt your education. Your command of language. Oh, you you are charming me, Abigail. You never charm me. Unless what you're about to say is cutting. John. Vanity. Vain. You have overburdened your argument with ostentatious erudition. You do not need to quote great men to show you are one. is to show uh, that certain principles are eternal and that men of great minds have <laughs> why are you laughing through the ages agreed on certain basic principles a noble purpose no doubt but some of the jury might think 
you want to prove the brilliance of the speaker rather than the truth of the case he is arguing. Well, perhaps in certain passages, a more direct line might be an improvement. Mm. We need people in our lives who will confront us in what we think is the most righteous of aspirations to show us what is really animating what we're out to. We need someone to laugh at us because if we really want to think about the nature of pride, it is utterly ridiculous to see ourselves before the face of the Lord, to see ourselves before the face of this cross, to arrogate to ourselves anything more than what we really are, to bubble over like that cauldron anymore, that's just laughable. And we need a people who love us so much that they have the courage to say what they must, but also laugh in our face to help us to see how ridiculous it is. That's love. That's needed, especially in what feels like the most noble of purposes. What happens when pride is being healed, then as the New Testament authors say from time to time in James chapter 5, you'll confess your sins one to another. You'll cast all your cares on him because you believe that he cares for you, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5. And you will think of others' interests as just as important as your own, as Paul says in Philippians 2. That's the marks of pride being healed. See, the healing of pride is nothing to do with self-loathing. It just mostly has to do with thinking about yourself a lot less so that you're freed up to do the things that you need to do that you might be healed. And in that we would find our rest. And it is to that rest that he commends us. Let's pray. Father, wherever it lurks in us or is so operative and so seemingly normal to us because we, we play that game every day, I pray that you would be so kind as to laugh at us in your own special way. For in your laughter at us, there is love and there is hope of believing something more sure and of knowing, of having a confidence in something that is not of this world, that is better than anything that we might achieve and certainly answers our worst failures. Father, help us to take rest in that and to be that for one another that we might be healed of this thing that holds us so tightly. In Jesus' name, amen.